Let's lift a shout of praise this morning. Come on, mighty God, you're our living hope. Thank you, Jesus, for your death and your resurrection. Holy God, we give you praise for the empty tomb. Thank you, Lord. Awesome. You may be seated. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen of the worship team. I love the uh, words of that song. In fact, we chose the song for that very reason. The fact that Jesus is a living hope. And living speaks of something that is present, alive, dynamic, moving, exciting right now. It isn't something we celebrate because it happened years ago and it's like a dry, dusty memory that we think, yeah, must have been good back then when Jesus was alive. It must have been good when they had a, a real hope. And here we are hanging on to something that perhaps isn't real. But that's not what a living hope is. And so we're here on Good Friday to talk about the origins of our living hope. We're here to talk about the events that happened on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the, the dead. But this morning I'm, I'm going to take us away from there, several hundred kilometres away in fact, and about 20 or 30 years after the event. Are you excited yet? Yeah. Here we are, we're moving away from Jerusalem. We're following this guy called Peter. Who remembers Peter? He was the mouthy one. Um, and so we have this, the Apostle Peter, he's writing to a bunch of churches. And he, he's, he's still mouthy, he's called his letter 1 Peter. Because he, he knows he's going to write more and he, he wants people to know it's him. Actually, I doubt if he put that at the top at all, but we do that these days. Um, but he's writing to this bunch of churches, and in verse 1, he actually names them all. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Who's ever visited any of those places? If you've been to Turkey, you may have, because it's uh, near the Black Sea in modern-day Turkey that we're talking about here. Anybody ever been to Oh, one person. Okay. Um, so anyway, there are people there and there are churches and um, you'll have to take my word for that. Um, and so one assumes that Peter's talking to these churches because he's got something to do with them, whether he, he started them, helped in their beginnings or has ministered to them in the past. Uh, he's writing to them because he has a connection. And he's also writing to them because he's noticed they're being persecuted. And he's writing to encourage them in these hard times. And verses 6 and 7 uh, contain in a nutshell his encouragement. He says, in all this you greatly rejoice. So he's telling them to be happy um, even through, though they're distressed. Because he says, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So he's trying to, he's trying to play it down a bit here. You may have suffered grief in all kinds of trials. So he knows that they're, they're hurting. And he says, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So it sounds as though he's advising them to, to be happy even though the situation is bad. 
And who knows that sometimes when people say, yeah, buck up, don't worry about it, she'll be right. The, the, the thing you really want to do is smack them one. Well, figuratively speaking, you would never, of course, be physically violent with anyone, and I certainly wouldn't feel like that. Um, but you sort of think, well, who is this Peter guy, and, and how, how come he expects them to listen to him? Because, you know, it's, it's just a letter. I mean, they, they could crumple it up and throw it away. Obviously didn't, because we've, we've still got it. But you sort of think, who is this guy? And uh, Peter's quite famous and infamous for a number of things that he did in his life. One of his most famous shining moments, if you like, is the day of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 14, we've got this, this picture of, of this crowd of people. And it says, And Peter stepped forward with the eleven other apostles and shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. We won't explore the, the implications of that. He says, no, what you were seeing was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. And then he goes on to preach to the crowd with dramatic results. And in verse 40, we see, it says, then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in number. And so that, that's pretty much a high point of Peter's sort of ministry career up to that point. And yet the remarkable thing about this, apart from the 3,000 baptisms, was that one of, only one of, more, of Peter's more infamous moments occurred just 50 days earlier when he was actually one of the two disciples who totally betrayed Jesus at Easter. We always remember the other one, Judas, because, I mean, the, the big difference here is Judas charged 30 pieces of silver. His, his betrayal, Peter did it for nothing. Uh, so you sort of wonder who, who was the worst one. Um, but he, he, after promising to follow Jesus, I mean, he was plucked from the shores of his lake fishing um, and he followed Jesus around and swore in company that he would never ever betray Jesus and yet we find there's there's a few little lines here Luke 22:56 says a servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him finally she said this man is one of Jesus followers but Peter denied it woman he said I don't even know him so we can see that Peter's a subtle changeable fellow and so we have this interesting contrast between Judas's betrayal and, G and Peter's because Judas was driven to despair by what he'd done and he ended up committing suicide. And yet Peter went on to be an extremely influential disciple in the early church. And so we can actually trace back to the fact that Judas, of course, never witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. He knew Jesus was going to die but he and most of the other disciples, in fact, all of the other disciples, had no idea that, about the resurrection. And yet Peter was lucky enough, if you like, to actually witness that resurrection. And it changed his life completely. He understood that the resurrection of Jesus, once he'd actually 
witnessed it meant a change. It changed the whole world, the whole future of his life, the whole future of the rest of humanity. And therefore, of course, it changed our lives. Well, it certainly has the capacity to change our lives if we let it. And so he's reminding these churches that it is indeed this event, the event of Jesus' resurrection, that's the source of the hope in our life. And the reason he's excited, of course, is because it's a living hope. And in verse 3, he says, Praise to be to God the Father, the Son of... the." Let me rewind that. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. And the inheritance is kept in heaven for you. This is where a lot of people go wrong. We assume that the inheritance is kept in heaven for us when we go to heaven. Uh, Jesus is keeping it for us in heaven so that he can bring it back to us here on earth when he comes back. So this idea that it's waiting for you in heaven and you need to go to heaven to get it, sorry, not scriptural. You can try if you like, but that's not what it says. And so we've got this new reality that was revealed on Easter morning that creates a living hope. So it's not just our belief in something that happened. It's our belief in a reality that's alive, dynamic, and is actually work at work in the world today. Peter clearly knows something about how humans work, probably because he learned it from Jesus. Uh, we're unique creatures. We're obviously not totally divorced from the world of living creatures because we come from the dust and we return to it. But there's something unique about the human species. Well, there's lots of unique things, actually. But one of those unique things is that we have this insatiable need for hope. Hope is one thing that as human beings, if we don't have it, life becomes unbearable. Consider the king of the beasts, the lion. You think, why should we consider a lion? Well, we could say, in Australia, we don't have lions, so we could consider dingoes. But I've just heard on the news this morning that there's been an attack on Fraser Island, so we'll stick to the lion. It's probably a bit safer territory for us at the moment. So, I don't know whether you've considered this, but the, the lion doesn't sit out on the African plain wondering what's going to happen after it dies. Or does anybody like it? The lion doesn't sit there wondering what the purpose of its life is or what next year is going to bring. The lion wakes up as a creature of instinct and impulse and it hunts, the, ant hunts rather, the antelope and the wildebeest to eat and survive another day. It's an animal and we don't fault the lion for being that, but we do fault human beings for acting that way. We expect human beings to do something more and unfortunately, Things like the recent Christchurch massacre show that it's actually quite difficult for some of us to be anything more than just the lion. But we know that to be truly human is to be more than that. And there's something about human beings that we have this need to organize our life events into a storyline that has a goal. We, we want to understand the meaning of events in our life. Has anybody ever heard of Viktor Frankl? He was a Jewish psychiatrist and psycho. He actually only died in uh, 1997. But he was in his early 20s when the Nazis conquered Austria 
And he and all the Jews that were living in the city where he lived in Austria were transported to the concentration camp called Dachau. And he survived. Uh, out of all of his friends and family, only he and one of his sisters actually survived the concentration camp. So he lost everyone he knew and everyone he loved. Apart from the sister, one assumes that he loved his sister. But after the, after the war, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in the first half of the book, he just tells his story of what the two and a half years of captivity was like and how he survived. And he was such an academic, I guess we'd probably call him a nerd, um, that the only way that he could cope with the horror of the death and suffering he saw around it was to analyze it. And so he became a psychologist. And while in the camp he had to do manual labor like everybody else, he actually began to see people in the camp for therapy sessions in the evenings. It's sort of hard to imagine, really. Sort of work yourself to death by day and then sort of I've got an appointment with my psychiatrist at uh, seven o'clock this evening. Um, but it was his way of coping and he helping make sense of what he was going through. And he became obsessed with how people were processing the horror and why some people seemed to survive and do well and why some people seemed to be crushed. And one of the things that he talks about in that book is precisely what Peter is talking about, hope. He came to the conclusion that the only people who were able to survive in some kind of semi-healthy way were the people who had hope. He said that some people responded to the loss and suffering by becoming like lions. They had just become brutal, bitter and angry and became like animals and creatures of instinct to survive in the camp. He observed and he worked with other people who became just utterly and totally indifferent and apathetic. They just shut out everything. He also talks about people who dealt with the suffering and loss through what psychologists call displacement or fantasy. They just fantasized about what life could be like. And sometimes, um, most of them he found fantasized about what their life was going to be like after the camp. They fantasized about their old friends and their old jobs and how things were going to go back to the way they were. And often these people survived the camp, but they didn't survive the aftermath. Because of course, they could never go back to what was before. They'd lost friends, their neighborhoods had been bombed, and a lot of these people actually survived the camp, but didn't survive many years after that because they were so traumatized by the camp and that their, their um, fantasies just didn't work out, as is often the case with fantasy. But there are a small number of people, himself included, who survived in this semi-healthy way. And these were the people who had hope. But he defines it not just as hope, but it's a simple hope. It was a hope that could transcend any circumstance. So he talks about a baker who got so much joy from baking bread that he just worked on the hope that one day he would be able to bake bread again. And that kept him alive. It didn't rely on it. They couldn't take that hope away from him because it was something outside of himself 
that didn't rely on circumstances or anything else, that one day he would be able to bake bread. Didn't matter where it was or what sort of bread or anything like that, but he could just do what he was believing that he could do. There were a couple of musicians whose only hope was to have an instrument and to play music once they were free. It was his hope to be able to practice and do therapy and help people. And that was the common denominator of all of these people. It was hope. But it was a hope that in some way could not be taken away from them by another person. And that's exactly what Peter is describing here in verses 3 and 4. And he says, A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. So in other words, it's a living hope. So it's dynamic, it's alive, it's with us. But it can't be spoiled, can't be tarnished, it won't perish. Because it's in Jesus Christ. And I want to ask the same question I asked earlier this morning. A question that we need to consider before we leave this place, because Peter doesn't answer it, but I think Viktor Frankl does. We can see when we read in 1 Peter that Peter doesn't say in God's great mercy he's given us a new birth into a living hope, the hope of your resurrection from the dead. He doesn't say that, does he? He says the resurrection of someone else, Jesus. Why on earth should my life hope and the hope of the universe hinge on somebody else's resurrection? If I'm hoping for something beyond death, shouldn't it be my resurrection? I mean, is anybody with me here? But there's a reason for that. My hope is built on something outside of myself. It's something that happened to Jesus. It's a hope that can transcend any circumstance and a hope that no one can take away. You see, at the Last Supper, Jesus took the bread and the cup and he announced that his broken body and his shed blood was for us. He took into himself all of the suffering and all of the pain and all of the sin and he allowed our humanity to overwhelm him and destroy him. It's a pretty big ask. So why did he do it? And he did it to become what we are so that we could become who he is. And so the empty tomb becomes my empty tomb and the resurrected body of Jesus becomes my hope because he became what I am so that I could become who he is. That's the hope that Peter's talking about when he's writing to these churches. Nobody can take away what Jesus did for you or for me. It's a hope in something wonderful and incorruptible that doesn't reside in us, but is a hope in someone else that cannot be taken away. That's the legacy of the empty tomb, an incorruptible hope. Can I ask you all to stand? Hope isn't pie in the sky. Hope isn't wishing. Hope actually requires us to take action. Hope actually requires us to think differently. In the concentration camp, the baker didn't just wish he could bake bread. He had a vision 
of bread. He imagined the ingredients for making bread. He imagined how he was going to knead the bread, how he was going to leave it to rise, how he was going to light a fire, how he, was, he did the things in his mind necessary to actually enact what he was believing that one day he was going to be able to do. There are stories of POWs in Vietnam who were confined in bamboo cages, six foot by six foot. And there's one particular story of a guy who stood there uh, in his cell and for six months he imagined that he was playing a round of golf at one of the golf courses that he knew in America. There wasn't enough room to even pretend to swing a club in this cage that he was in, but he stood there and he imagined walking from every tee to every hole and hitting the ball along the way. And in six months, he actually imagined himself going from a 10 over par player to an under par player. Who'd like to imagine, who's a golfer here, would like to imagine that? But his hope was so strong his belief in what he could do was so strong that after he was released and after he'd become fit enough again, he walked out onto that golf course and shot around exactly as he had imagined from his cell because he had taken on board that vision so strongly. And that is the hope that we need to have in Jesus Christ. It's not a wish. It's not, I wish God would help me do this. I wish God would do that. It's actually a hope that if we imagine what we know about God in our minds, if we hold on to that hope and we act out of that hope, that as we pray to God, we don't pray, we don't pray wishful prayers. Oh God, so I wish I was rich. God, I wish I was well. God, I wish I had this. We need to pray prayers that say, God, I can see, I have a vision and a hope of what you have promised me in your word that what you promise will come to pass. The hope I have in your resurrection is a hope in something that is real and cannot be taken away from me. But to do that, we have to accept an invitation that he extends to every person. To accept that death and resurrection as a sacrifice he made for you and for me. And all he asks is that we acknowledge that that sacrifice was for you and to accept that he just says call me Lord and I will be your Lord and Saviour and all it requires is for us to to acknowledge that he is our Lord and Saviour and to start moving on a journey with him to discover what that hope means in our own lives but we've got to start that journey and we do that by inviting him into our lives. And so I want to do that right now. Can I ask everybody just to close their eyes for a moment? And if you're here and you've never said to Jesus, look, I want to be in your life. I want you to be my Lord. I want to have a hope in your resurrection that tells me that I have an incorruptible hope. My future is assured. Or you've done that perhaps in the past, but you know that you're not walking that path. You're not living in that hope that Jesus gave you. Then now is a time, a great time on Good Friday to actually say, okay, Jesus, I'm coming back. 
I'm going to accept you as my Lord and Saviour. I'm going to start from this moment on walking in a living hope in my life. And if that, that's you this morning, you've never done that before and you, you want to make that step or you've done it before, but you know that you need to redo that. While every eye is closed, can I just ask you right now just to lift your hand high so that I can see it? And we'll pray a prayer. And I just want to know that if you're lifting your hand, that I'm praying for you this morning as we all pray together. Is there anyone at all who wants to accept Jesus Christ this morning, a living hope into our lives? Awesome. Can I ask you to pray a prayer with me this morning? Just repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I pronounce you in my life a true hope. I cast away all false hope, all false identities, all false ideas that give me a false direction. Lord, I am true to your word, to your vision for my life. Thank you for making me a child of God. Amen.